All right, so we are going to read Mark chapter 15, 21 and following. And if you want to turn there, you can. It will be on the screen behind me, and you can read along. Mark 15, 21 and following. And I'm going to have you stand as we do that. Now, this is the story of the crucifixion. If there's any passage of Scripture we should stand up for, this is it, right? This is the moment. We've been working our way to this final place where Jesus dies. And uh, that's not the end of the story, but it is an end in and of itself in one sense. And so we need to kind of honor that. And so as we read, just kind of, you know, recreate within yourself the, the scene that you're looking at. You know, this needs to be more than words on a page. We need to see in our hearts what Jesus did for us this morning. So read along with me. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud voice and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. May God bless the reading of his word, and you can have a seat. I'm going to just lead us in a moment of prayer. Thanks, Matt. God, we just thank you. Your grace is sufficient. And in this passage of Scripture, we see... We see grace. It's grace maybe embodied. It's grace at its fullest moment of sacrifice. But there's something else we need to see this morning. We need to see the violence of what occurs. We need to see your willingness to go through that darkness, through the midst of difficulty, through the midst of what is absolutely the worst injustice the world has ever seen. And I I ask that you would help us to see with open eyes and that you would bless us with renewed vision as we watch this passage develop. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Moment of truth. We're back. So I have to admit that I love to read. I just, 
almost anything. I, I've liked to read my whole life. I remember when I was a little kid, I read uh, Campbell Soup Cans after my mom made me mushroom cream of mushroom soup, you know? I mean, that's the sort of reader I am. And in our world today, we actually have a, a very different sort of understanding. We're, we're pixelated, if you will, right? That's my own word for it, and usually we use that word in quite a different way. But we are constantly looking at pictures and hearing sounds, but we're not necessarily processing. And this passage of Scripture asks us to read and understand something that's deeper, and, and we need our imaginations to be kind of captured in this passage and to see it inside of our minds. Part of being a reader is that I, I have read a lot of books, and one of the classes I took in college was about reading books. It was called Violence and Grace in the Novel. Sound interesting? It was a Christian course, believe it or not. And the, the, the professor led us through a bunch of different books. They were great books. And each one of them, she showed us that you don't get grace without violence. You just never can get there. What's broken in our world requires that if we're going to get to the place where there's a goodness at the end, we have to go to that place through negativity, through darkness, through pain. Violence first, she said. So you don't get grace without violence. You also don't have much, if you only have violence, without grace. You need both. And this story has both. And yet, in the Christian church, sometimes we easily just kind of get focused on the resurrection story and the grace that we all enjoy. We know that Ephesians 2 tells us it is by grace we have been saved by faith or through faith, not of works lest any man should boast, right? We've heard these words again and again in our lives. And that means that we can walk free and cleanly of the sin of our past. And we have sinned, right? Let's just put it out there. You don't have to tell me your sin, but you need to admit it. We are failures, right? Come on. Let's be honest. You've sinned this week. I've sinned this week. My reactions, my internal temperature and the way it rises when people offend me, it's all part of the whole thing. There is violence in this chest of mine and violence in this head of mine. And I walk around as somebody who understands the darkness of sin because it's within me. And Jesus has called us to something more. And in this passage of Scripture, we're going to see it. Violence and grace, we see the violence in this moment. I have to tell you, I did something this past week. I I like to read, and that means one of the things I like to read is the Old Testament. I'm especially focused, I just love the book of Genesis. Taught a class on it here this past summer. And so when the movie Noah came out, and I have seen all of your Facebook posts about this, by the way, okay? None of my friends, my own mother went to see this movie and she said, Josh, I had to take a bath and read the Bible afterwards. It was so bad. And I thought, well, how bad can a movie about Noah be, you know? Well, I decided that I needed to see this movie. And on Thursday night, Shelby and I went out and we watched Noah. And I have heard some of you say, don't go see this movie. And my mom said, don't go see this movie. Well, as it turns out, I liked this movie. I got to tell you, I liked it. And I like it because it's, I, I don't know if I felt good about it. There's nothing to feel good about in this movie. It's a dark movie, and I'm not telling you to go see it. I'm not saying everything in it's biblical or right. But it, there is something inside of it that is honest about Genesis. You see, Genesis is a book, and the movie records this. Genesis chapter 3 has a moment where these people fail for the first time. They birth the violence of sin in an unbroken world. They do the first breaking. They take a bite of this fruit. And you know how long it takes to, for that to grow into something worse? It's not very long at all. Genesis 3 records the first sin. Genesis 4 records the first murder. Cain kills Abel. And then what seems to happen, although the details are a little sketchy in Genesis, the, the one murder 
births a bunch of other murders and there are people being killed and hurt and damaged and there's all of this scandal and violence and all of this different stuff until you get to Genesis chapter 6 when God looks at the human race and he says, I'm sorry I ever made man. I'm honestly so grief-stricken that I wish I would have never breathed the breath of life into Adam and Eve's lungs. And I am just really, really perplexed about what to do. The imaginings of these people, according to Genesis, every bit of the imaginings were violent and evil. And God says, the most merciful and gracious thing I can do right now is end it. The movie actually records this really well. It actually says that sin births sin, and that sin births more sin. And once you sin a little bit, you tend to sin a lot more. And it keeps going and going and going until there's so much devastation on this planet. You just see the the movie shows just kind of miles of barren land where there are tree stumps because the people of the earth decided to not take care of what was going on around them. Instead, they just kind of gave into it and destroyed and took dominion in some sort of weird way. In the middle of all of that brokenness, The book of Genesis records a tremendous amount of grace. It tells us that there was this guy named Abraham and God started him out and said, move from Ur of the Chaldees to the promised land and I'm going to create a great nation through you and I'm going to birth grace through you and I'm going to bless all of the nations of the earth through you. And Genesis chapter, or Romans chapter four tells us that this man believed against hope. He hoped against hope that God was to be taken at face value. And when he said these words that he was going to make Abraham a great nation, Abraham believed it and it actually turned out to be true. It took hundreds of years. And Abraham's faith was taxed to a a huge extent, but yet God was in the middle of this doing something. The movie tells you none of that. It ends with the violence and never gets to the real great grace at the end. And I'm not telling you you should see it again. But I do find it interesting that they take you back and they take me back and they help my imagination to feel the darkness of the world we're a part of. Josh Hostetter and I were in a pastoral meeting this week and we were talking about a situation and it just kind of came to us that, that, and I said it and I don't know that he agreed, I won't dime him out and say he did, but it occurred in this situation as we do counseling that one of the most dangerous things anybody in Pottstown, Pennsylvania ever does is lies. You tell one lie. And the enemy's got you. Because then there's another lie and another lie and another lie. And we actually talked about the fact that we know people who are just so filled with lies that they've stopped knowing the truth when they see it. I was at the bus stop the other day and the, the other mom who picks up her child along with our kids, she's there. She's an alternative educator. She's a, involved in an alternative ed program in Pottstown. And this young guy walks up to her, actually skateboarded up to her and says, hey, Mrs. So-and-so. And she said, oh, yeah, there's a connection. They know each other. And he says, I'm doing great. And you can just tell this is kind of standing in contrast to what he expects she would expect. He says, I'm doing great. I'm in the Marine Corps. Good. That's great to hear. And I work for a steel company in Allentown. And I live up there, but I'm down here in Pottstown just staying with my grandmother. And then he skateboarded away. And I thought nothing of it. And then this mom looked at me and she said, none of that was true. Nothing this kid has ever told us has ever been true. He doesn't even know when he's lying. He lies so often. That's true of us a little bit. As a world, we are born into a violence that we don't even understand. Let me give you just a few examples. I was driving along the Benjamin Franklin Highway yesterday, and I saw these railroad cars, and I saw that on the sides of them there was a perpetrated a sort of violence. They weren't red in color like they were supposed to be. They were vibrant green and orange and yellow. Some of it was actually quite beautiful. Others of it, I was hoping my kids wouldn't read the words that were written on the side of this train. You know what I mean, right? It's vandalism. 
My kids, they grew up in a city that has a six rating on a one to ten scale as far as oxygen purity and the cleanness of our air. I suspect Los Angeles is ten. Where I grew up, it's a one. I've checked. There's a violence being perpetrated by all this carbon monoxide in my kids' lungs as they kind of live within sight of 422. That's to say nothing of the violence that all of us go through when people talk bad about us, betray us. The people in our lives who we love kind of go the wrong direction and we have this brokenness. We have to come to grace through the realization that we walk through a world that is broken and devastated and there is damage done to us. And some of those things look far out there and we've never thought of cancer as a violence that results from sin, but it is. And we've never maybe thought of carbon monoxide and the burning in our lungs as somehow resulting from that or the vandalism of somebody spray painting on the side of a... Freight car. We've maybe never thought of these things as results of sin, but they are. There's another whole list that you and I would both agree with, and those things have to do with actual sin that you and I know, one-to-one ratio stuff, where we're looking at somebody and they've sinned against us, or we've looked at ourselves and we've sinned against others. We've been there, right? You and I, we've all been there. Well, in this moment on the cross, Jesus does something absolutely amazing. He says, I understand and God has always understood the violence of this world. And there is no redemption without this violence. We can't act like it doesn't exist. We can't act like grace and forgiveness just come easily. They come at an immense cost. Let me tell you what I mean. The writer of Hebrews writes it this way. He says, writing of the Old Testament, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And in his mind, you can picture Exodus with the Passover story, this this angel of death coming against the Egyptians to kill the firstborn, and they're going to be set free, these Hebrews, by this terrible plague that's going to destroy thousands of lives. And they were to kill a, a lamb and put the blood on the lentils of their doorframe, the, the up and the down and the sides. They, they were put, put the blood up there, and somebody had to die for that. You go to Leviticus 16, one of the great celebrations in Israel's life was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And there they placed all of the sin of all of the people on this goat. They called it the Azazel goat. And they dedicated that goat with sin, not with goodness, but with violence and nastiness. And they sent it out into the desert, never more, more to be seen. And then they killed all of these animals to purify the nation. God embedded within these people's systems something that really saved no one, I suspect. But it was a violent understanding that it would require violence and difficulty to get to the moment of forgiveness and healing. And right from the get-go, right from the beginning of Exodus, right from the beginning of Genesis, right from the beginning of what this whole world was about, God continues not to rub our nose in sin, not to condemn us, but to make sure that we understand that this is a deep and broken situation we are in and that it's not going to be somehow cleansed easily we can't just take a bath we can't just say like little children say when they're caught in some sin i'm sorry god we're fine you don't just walk away there will be a payment there will be a cost and this passage tells us indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood when moses talked when david talked when aaron talked when noah talked they understood this And then this line, and it's one that echoes through the ages. It needs to echo in our hearts and in our minds. And as we see Jesus on the cross this morning in this passage, we have to think about it. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no ability to walk away from this past of ours without somebody paying the price. And it will cost him his very life. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus didn't die so he could show us just what a martyr looked like. He didn't die so he could somehow show us how to live peacefully and somehow stand up as some kind of peaceful demonstrator against tyranny or oppression. He died because it required someone to die for there to be sinlessness on this planet. For the opportunity for you and I to ever know God, there had to be blood and it had to be shed and it had to be innocent blood. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians this great passage, which is so valuable. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. There's that great psalm that the psalmist writes, Search me and try me, find if there be any hurtful way in me. When Jesus prayed that psalm, as every Jew would have, what would he have come up with? Search me and try me, look inside me, he says, and there's nothing there. There's never been a moment in my life when I have asked God, What's wrong with me that he's remained completely silent? I don't know about you. Whenever I go to God and I say, where am I wrong? He shows me things because there's always things in there. There are blips on this little radar of mine. And if I can't find them for myself, I ask my wife or my kids. And they tell me that there's all sorts of things I don't see about myself, right? We have things wrong with us. And yet Jesus didn't. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He looked inside himself and he saw no wrong because there was no wrong. There was never a wrong inclination. There was never a wrong desire. There was never the hint of a wrong thought. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And without this Christ Jesus, without the remission without the remission of sins, we can't know God. And without the shedding of blood, we can't have remission of sins. And so we're stuck, right? And Jesus dies for this reason. Walt Wangren writes in this week's readings, and it's just powerful. This hit me like a ton of bricks. I think he puts it better than I've ever heard it before. He says about this very passage, 2 Corinthians 5.21, the one we just read. He says, Paul does not write, quote unquote, to bear our guilt as though a good man became better by substituting himself for our punishment. It's not as though this is just about the shame that comes from sin. I feel bad sometimes when I sin, but Jesus takes away a whole lot more than me feeling bad. He takes away a lot more than me feeling the guilt and the regret that I sometimes feel when I get arrogant and say the wrong words. He takes away something much deeper. Keep reading. Severely, Paul writes, God made him to be sin. Jesus has become a bad man. The worst of all men. The badness, in fact, of all men and all women together. Paul does not write to bear our sin as though Jesus and sin are essentially separate things. The one await upon the other for just a while. No, but to be sin. Jesus is sin. Jesus is the thing itself. I don't know if you've ever read 2 Corinthians like that. He didn't just take away the stuff in our hearts that comes from sin. He didn't just take away the the stuff that we feel bad about. He took away the actual sin itself and he became that thing. And when he prayed that prayer, if he would have prayed it on the cross, he would have seen sin, massive and ugly, deeply bearing on his soul. Wangren continues to write, Today, Friday, between the third and the ninth hour, beneath a blackening sky, Jesus has become the rebellion of humankind against its God. 
He shouts these famous words, quoting Psalm 22. He says, my Lord, my Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why does he shout them? Because there's so much darkness in his soul that the light from on high, there's a, there's a distance that has developed that has never been there before. He who became sin for us had never known sin in the history of his life. And yet he took on all of our sins. He took all of our sins upon himself and he somehow poured those into his life and said, I am sin that you don't need to know it anymore. That is a huge, huge cost. And when we talk about the grace and how we're saved, it is free, but it is never cheap. It comes at a great cost. It comes at this God's life. And in the middle of this, he offers us redemption and hope. How does he get here? How does he offer this much? How does he decide to become not just a bad man, but the worst of all men because he takes all of our sin upon him? And how do we continue to walk in those sins so easily when we've been separated by so great a sacrifice as this? What a gift. If I were God and I was willing to go as far as we're hearing so far, I would say this line. I would say, okay, well then, for those people who I know are going to turn around and I'm going to ask them in advance, if I do this, will you do that? Okay? I will die for your sins. I will send my Jesus to die for your sins. And if I do that, will you humbly bow the knee and accept that you're to live humbly the rest of your life and realize that you're forgiven and never look down your nose on somebody else and never somehow think that you need to be some sort of uppity Christian who is all of this. Will you agree to this? And if you would have said that line, I would have never been able to sign on. Because I realize as redemption has affected my life, it set me free and I used that freedom to do any number of other worse atrocities. Some of the worst of them are being self-righteous and prideful, right? You know, when I look in my journals, I got out my journals from 1999 and 2000. That's when I first moved to Pennsylvania. I used to write in the Vanguard parking lot where I worked, and during my lunch hour, I used to take time and write in my journal. And I read my journal, and it is so disheartening and heartening at the same time. I see great distance where God has taken me and changed me, but I also see the same sort of sinfulness in 1999 that I hear from others who are around me in 2014. It's the same nasty little stuff in my soul, and I haven't completely gotten past it. And yet God said, I'm still going to send Jesus, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, so I'm going to send my Jesus to shed his blood, and then I'm going to say, this Jesus who knew no sin is going to become sin for Josh. And he's going to continue to offer that redemption even in the face of the fact that I'm prideful in 2014 and I'm arrogant in 2014 and I struggle with the same sins to some degree that I did 15 years ago. And yet, listen to this verse. It's so important, Romans 5a. It says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't ask me to sign a clause that said, if you... Forgive your, or give your sins over to me, then you need to walk free and clear and decide to be humble and innocent the rest of your life. Instead, he said, no, while you're yet in your sins, Christ died for us. While God, Jesus is still dying, I'm still unsure of whether I want to give up on this person who I am. Paul writes, he says, you're in the flesh. You're thinking about yourself. You're living your life for greed, for laziness, for your personal sense of what you want to accomplish, but you're not living for me. And yet, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Without Jesus knowing sin, there's no righteousness for me. And if he would have waited for me to come around and decide to give up on my sin, then he would have never died at all because I still struggle, even today. 
We're in the middle of a great violent battle. I don't know if you know this, but God is at work in the tradition of the church, Paul's writings, Say that we're to die with Christ. When we get baptized, we go down into the water, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and we symbolically, and I don't believe this does anything magic. I don't think your lives are changed when you get under that water. But there is something symbolic that we say, we want to die with Christ, and then when we get out of the water, we want to live with Christ. And it's as though we walk through the death and resurrection in kind of a symbolized little way. It doesn't actually change your sinfulness. It just says, this is what I want to do. I want to walk with Jesus. I want to be a part of the church. Well, let me say this. That our lives are about things dying. Little pieces of our lives. And what I watch in my journal as I read back over the years, I see little pieces of me that I'm trying to pull up on the altar and say, yes, God, I'll give you this stuff. And I keep trying to crawl off the altar like a living sacrifice. I don't want to give up my pride. I don't want to give up my arrogance. I don't want to give up these little secret sins that nobody knows about. I don't want that stuff to sit out there. I want to keep it in here. And you do too, right? And God is saying, you must die with me. And I don't want to kill your life. I don't want to end the real you. I want to get rid of all that stuff that needs to go away. That Jesus took on himself. He who knew no sin became sin for you and for me. And God is killing stuff about me. And he is bringing to life a whole bunch of other stuff about me. We call it regeneration. We call it renewal. We call it healing. We call it forgiveness. We call it cleansing. We call it transformation. We call it sanctification. There's an endless number of words we use for it. But what it has to do with is me going through a narrow little chute where things are being slowly burned off of my life. And I find it uncomfortable so that I can come out the other end. And the chute I'm going through is the cross of Jesus Christ. And if the pieces of Josh Bightwork don't flow through that cross, then there are pieces of me, unredeemed and broken and nasty, that are sitting on the outside. They may be forgiven and God sees past them, but they are eating away at my life as something that is of the old and not part of the new. This is where our lives sit. Not quite through the chute, not quite through the funnel, not quite burning away all of the dross and the darkness, and we're not quite to the light. Why do we celebrate or worship, or go through this season of Lent? Why do we do this? Because we are finding in ourselves the things that God would burn away this season. He is constantly picking apart our lives and blessing us like a wise doctor, like a good therapist, and saying, you can give that up now. It's time for you to just hand it over. It's time for the cross to affect this piece of who you are. I don't know what pieces of your life God wants to change this season, but he wants to change it. And I don't know how it will set you free, but I know that it will birth new life in you. I know that it will feel uncomfortable. I know that you will, in the words of Philippians 2, you will be working out your salvation with a sense of fear and trembling because it doesn't feel good when things are cut off of our life, even if they're things we don't need and shouldn't want. But God wants to bless you with the removal of some of these pieces. I'm going to close in prayer. Without the remission Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Let that word just echo in your ears and in your heart and in your imagination just for a second. Ask God, what does he want to cut out of your life? What does he want you to offer up on this altar this morning? What does he want for you to hand over to him? What does he want you to bring to the cross and leave there and then walk beyond it into what's coming next? 
There's a resurrection. We know what's on the way. But what needs to be left here to live the new life that God so graciously wants for you and for me? Take just a couple minutes before we move into our final prayer and worship. Just take a couple minutes and ask God what those would be.